can have your seats, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Our text tonight is Hebrews 1, verses 5 to 14, Um, and I want to begin by reading the passage and to capture the sort of full flow of the argument. I want to read from Uh, the very beginning, and then into the first part of chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This reads the word of the living God. Our passage tonight, in verses 5 to 14, is in exposition, a further explanation of the first four verses that we looked at last week. In these ten verses, we see the author of Hebrews use the Old Testament, seven different passages in the Old Testament, to further expand and explain this truth about Jesus 
the unrivaled Son of God. We saw last week that after the many times and the many ways God had spoken to the fathers through the prophets that Jesus was the perfect candidate. He was the perfectly qualified candidate to be the final and definitive voice from God. And he brought a message that fulfilled all that God had said before. And the message he brought, the very core of that message, was that by his life and death and resurrection, that he made purification for sins. He brought redemption. He made forgiveness possible. He made reconciliation with God possible. And upon completing his work, we saw in verse 4, he sat down, he was finished, so he sat down at the right hand of God. And at that point, he inherited the name that was more excellent than the angels, that of Son. Well, the author of Hebrews isn't finished. He's not done showing us the greatness of Jesus. And so here we are, we get verses 5 to 14 to further help us. And we get this extended assistance in seeing the worthiness of our Savior as the unrivaled Son of God, God's final word. But we here get more of just how worthy He is of our worship. We get here in these verses, full view of how he himself is what we must pay much closer attention to so that we do not neglect such a great salvation accomplished for us by such a great Savior. Now, the author of Hebrews shows us the greatness of Jesus in this passage by using what is maybe to us in this day and age in this era of redemptive history, using argumentation that may be somewhat unfamiliar, admittedly, but that would have been very familiar to the original Hebrew audience. You see, here in these 10 verses, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus, the unrivaled Son of God, to angels, to angels. Here in these verses, he shows us through seven Old Testament passages that Jesus is superior to angels. And you may think, why angels? Seems random. Some commentators have gone to wonder if this community he was writing to had a problem with worshiping angels, with venerating angels. And while that's possible... I don't believe that's necessarily the most helpful way to understand this. Uh, think about it this way. I want you to think about the last time you went to a restaurant. Maybe you haven't been one to in one. You haven't been to one in a while, so you can think about the restaurant that you hope you're going to next week. You know, the 14th. Think about a restaurant, and think about your experience at that restaurant. It's all about the person across from you. 
Not the food, but the person across. You said the food. You were thinking about steak. I saw you. you. Me too. It's all about the person across from you, the food, the ambiance. You can give any number of answers, right? Your experience at a good restaurant, fancy schmancy or just regular Joe, is made better by a person. And that person is the person who comes to your table all the time and asks you how you're doing. It's that person who waits on you, asks you if you need more water or Diet Coke. And unless you're really special, you don't get to talk to the chef. I mean, some of us in the room might get to talk to the chef, but not all of us. You talk to your waiter or waitress. I want you to understand angels in this passage and in the Hebrew mind as the waiters and waitresses, the messengers of divine revelation. They were the go-betweens in the Hebrew mind between God and man. And even in considering the very pinnacle of God's revelation in the law of Moses, it was understood by the Hebrew mind to be given by angels and confirmed by angels. Just listen to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 where he describes this in a sort of passing way. He says there, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's accusing the people in front of him. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's Stephen's indictment, but his relaying of that truth that the law was in some way delivered by angels. It's a truth corroborated by Galatians 3.19. Paul is talking about the proper role of the law in the Christian's life, and he says this, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. These two passages just help us to understand what the Hebrew mind understood. And it was the truth that angels assisted God in revealing his truth to mankind. In particular, in these two passages, what's in view is the Mosaic Law. And so the author of Hebrews is, in understanding that truth and how that worked, is using that logic and that importance of angels to argue for the greatness of Jesus. So because of their role, angels were understood and held in high regard, understood to be even revered in some cases, as I said, is a possibility. As God's messengers, they were the ones through whom God had delivered his very law. And Galatians 3.19 talks about by an intermediary, well, that would have been Moses as well. So with the assistance of men, but also apparently angels, God gave his word and God gave his law. And so angels were seen as the primary messengers of the old covenant. And if you look at church history and different traditions and different parts of the church universal, angels came to be in high regard and in many different ways. 
angels represented all that God had said, and they were the representatives of heaven itself in, in a way. And so all that to say, angels here in this passage serve as a helpful reference point for us. They are a lofty point of comparison, theologically speaking, in the Hebrew mind, and if we can get in that mind just a little bit tonight, it'll help us to see that Jesus is not only superior to angels, but as the Son of God, Jesus is the great God of very God, Son of God, unrivaled, supreme King. We can look at angels and compare Jesus to him and see the greatness of Jesus. And so from a standpoint of the text, we're going to look at how Jesus is superior to angels. But the reasons we'll find for the truth that Jesus is indeed superior to angels are also reasons for us as to why we must simply worship Jesus as the supreme Son of God with all that we are. And friends, for occupied hearts, for divided hearts, for idolatrous hearts like ours on a Friday night in the middle of a quarter, and in life, with our sights set on all that we want to accomplish in this season, and perhaps all that this world has to offer us in this season, we need to hear these reasons because they will focus us on that which keeps us low and that which keeps us thankful and that which keeps us worshipful. And what is that? The supreme greatness of Jesus. So let's pray to that end before we begin. Father, we ask your help. As we look to your word, would you show us wonderful things of your son? Help us, Lord, to pay much closer attention to these things so we don't neglect the salvation you've brought through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at three reasons why we must worship Jesus as the supreme son of God. These three reasons will reorient us and recalibrate our thinking and our love and our worship tonight of Jesus, the Son of God. The first reason why we must worship Jesus as the supreme Son of God is that Jesus has the right to reign. That Jesus has the right to reign. It's verses 5 and 6. That Jesus is the rightful ruler. Jesus is the qualified king, and it's because he is the son of God. Here in verses 5 and 6, the author uses three Old Testament quotations, so it's three of those seven, and he shows us that the unrivaled son of God has a right to reign over all things. Angels and everything else. Jesus has the right to reign. And to see that, we actually need to go back to verses 3 and 4. Look there again. Uh, After making purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we looked at those verses last week, I know that I, if you're paying attention, I mentioned briefly that the name in verse 4 is, is up for debate. It could be Yahweh, it could be Lord, it could be Son. Uh, but after studying this week a little more, that passage, but the passage we have before us tonight, I'm convinced this name, this title that's referred to in verse 4 has to be that of son, that of son. First of all, it's what's in view here in verse 5. The two Old Testament quotes, the common thread between those two quotes is the word son. And all throughout this chapter, that theme comes back up, son and father and son and father. Secondly, also, it's what, after he made purification for sins and is exalted to the Father's right hand, it's, it's what gives Jesus the right to rule and reign as supreme. It's that he is the Son that gives him that right. How do we understand that? Look at verse 5. It shows us. It helps us. Remember, this is an exposition. This is explaining for us. We're looking at a sermon, in a sense, uh, as we look at these verses. Um, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This first Old Testament passage is Psalm 2. Turn over to Psalm 2 if you have that. Psalm 2, and that's verse 7. Uh, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Now, we looked at this a little bit last week, but we need to just look at it and talk about it again for a little bit. It's a, remember, messianic psalm. And so it's a psalm that looks at the coming Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one that all of God's people looked for. More importantly, perhaps, is how this song, this psalm was used in Israel's history. It was a coronation psalm. It was a song that would have been sung whenever a new Davidic king was, uh, was put into power. But when they were celebrating a new king and they had a ceremony, they would sing or they would play this famous song. In verse 2, we see God's anointed uh, the king's leaders set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, the Messiah, the promised one. And then in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's God speaking. And then verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then verse 8, we see the son has an inheritance of nations. And in verse 9, that inheritance is an inheritance in which he will rule. And there's a terrifying reality in verse 9. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's future and coming judgment under this son's rule for those who do not submit to this son's rule. And that's why this psalm ends with verse 12. Kiss the son or pay homage to the son, lest 
he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 in our passage pulls out this quote from Psalm 2-7 simply to say God has called Jesus son. That he has given him this name as an inheritance and it's a fulfillment of this coronation song that's been used all throughout Israel's history. And he's asking the question, and to which of the angels has God ever done that? For which of all of God's angels, myriads and myriads of them, thousands of thousands of them, how many of them has God ever said, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And it's a rhetorical question, because the answer is none. None of God's angels are worthy of this name, the Son, the Son of God. This rhetorical question frames our passage tonight. It's there in verse 5, and then it's again in verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said? And then there's Psalm 110. We'll get there in just a moment. Now to be clear, because this is a verse that has been misconstrued and abused worlds over. We need to talk just a little bit about a word here in this verse. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This word begotten is, to be clear, not referring to Jesus being created or born in some way in eternity past. If you remember with clarity, verse 2 talked about how he was the agent of creation, through whom God created the world. And so Jesus was not created. He was not born in some way, even in eternity past. This is also not a reference to the incarnation or the virgin birth. What this is, is a reference to the beginning or the bringing forth, uh, the coronation of Jesus' reign as the son, uh, to his time as the messianic king, uh, reality that was already his in eternity past, but which begins its fullness, as we've said, at Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. One commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, says it this way, he who was son of God from everlasting entered into the full exercise of all the prerogatives implied by his sonship, when after his suffering had proved complete, he was raised to the Father's right hand. And so there's a beginning or a beginning, a coronation here in view that we're going to see over and over. And we'll begin to see that Hebrews 1 itself is a coronation ceremony for Jesus the King. The second Old Testament reference in verse 5 helps us to understand this truth even more deeply and even more clearly. Look at the second half of verse 5. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This second Old Testament reference is from 2 Samuel 7. Turn there. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is uh, such a help for us because... It is a landmark that you should know. It's a point in Israel's history that when you hear 2 Samuel 7, you should know 
immediately what happens in that passage. And if you don't, no shame to you, I'm just saying. Let's learn this. Let's, let's learn our Bibles together a little bit. 2 Samuel 7 is what we call the Davidic covenant. It's when God establishes his promises to David and to all who would be in his line. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, David decides in the beginning of it that he's going to build God a house. He says, I have a house, and I feel bad about it, so I'm going to build God a house. And so uh, it's my idea. I'm sticking with it. I've got good intentions. It must be, it must be a good idea. But it's not what God wants. And God tells him that. That, thank you, David, for your good intentions. He doesn't say that, but he says, through the prophet Nathan, thanks, no thanks. In fact, I'm going to build you a house, he says. I'm going to build you a house. And God tells him and rebukes him through the prophet Nathan, but with the rebuke, God is gracious to also give David and to give all of David's line and all of God's people and us too, through these promises to David, this covenant with precious promises and great implications. I just want you to get a taste of these promises. Look at 2 Samuel 7. Look at verse 10. This is God speaking through Nathan. And I will uh, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure but forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's stop there. These are great promises, some which were fulfilled even within Solomon's lifetime, David's son. Some which were fulfilled later in history by Jesus. And some that have yet to be fulfilled. A land for God's people. But in God's faithfulness and in fulfillment of his promises, Solomon would build a house for God, the temple. And in God's faithfulness and in fulfillment of these promises, from David would come a line of kings, first Solomon and then others. And yet none of these human kings would have their throne established forever. All of them, every single one of them, would commit iniquity. Some following God little bit more faithfully at first, some of them disobeying God completely, but all committing iniquity and receiving what's promised here, discipline from God and the stripes as of men. 
And so none of these mere men had a house and a kingdom that would be made sure forever before God. And so in 2 Samuel 7, just like in Psalm 2, we have the picture of a coronation scene. A king being exalted and brought into place and being told, you are my son by God himself. Two different scenes in Old Testament history, both looking forward to promises not yet fully fulfilled and looking forward to this future king, this one who God himself would call son. And in Hebrews 1, we have the fulfillment. We have another coronation scene. And it's Jesus the Son, Jesus enthroned at the Father's right hand, given the right to reign. It's Jesus the Son who, from the foundation of the world, has had the right to reign. And yet now as he builds this house for God, a house not made with human hands, but this household of God's people, sinners reconciled to God through the blood of this Son. This is Jesus, the Son, His throne and His right to reign made sure forever over the angels, over God's people, and over all things. It's what Paul speaks of in Romans. Romans is an awesome book. I wish we could spend a lot of time in this passage, but I just want to show you what Paul says about this Jesus being declared the Son of God. He's introducing himself in the beginning of the book. He says, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he talks about the gospel here, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Similar to what we've been talking about in Hebrews. And the gospel is, verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, what we see in Romans 1 is what we see in Hebrews 1 and what we see looked forward to in the Old Testament that there would be one who would be called Son of God, exalted to the Father's right hand, who God would call Son. The name which is more excellent than the name of angels. And so we return to Hebrews and we ask, with the author, to which of the angels did God ever say this? The author of Hebrews is wondering. None. No angels. Throughout the Bible, angels are actually often called the sons of God, collectively, together as a group, or as they behave or misbehave. You think of Genesis 6 or Job, and those are several well-known examples of when angels are called the sons of God, plural. But none of the angels are singled out, is the point of the author of Hebrews, None of them, not even an archangel, not even Gabriel, not Michael, none are given to be the Son of God. Back to Hebrews 1. In fact, 
in verse 7 of our passage, the author uses Deuteronomy 32 to show us this isn't just a comparison between Jesus, the Son of God, and the angels. We're going to add on the fact here that not only does Jesus have a greater name as the Son of God over the sons of God, the angels aren't just inferior, they worship Jesus. Look at verse 7. Uh, Sorry, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is better than angels because he has has the right to reign as the son of God. Uh, But angels are not just inferior. They, in fact, actively worship Jesus. Verse 6 brings further need for Clarification, just briefly, because many people have stumbled over the words in verse 6 and created cults and created shipwreck of the faith and gone astray because of a translation of what this verse says. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Again, you might think immediately just in English, okay, firstborn. Jesus was born? This word for tautikos is the word firstborn, first in priority, first in rank. The, the rank or the priority you get when you are born first, when you're the oldest child, especially in ancient Aristotelian culture. And so this is not a term that is being used here to express origin or birth, but rank and position and honor, what we've already been talking about, son. It's a term that is used of Israel in Exodus 4.22 as God's firstborn. It speaks of a person or a group of people who has a special place in a father's heart, in his love. It can and it does refer to those who are literally born first, literally the oldest child, but it is also commonly used and is used here as a term simply for one who is foremost, or premier, or highest ranking. We need to also look at this phrase uh, where he's being brought into the world. What is this talking about? Is this the incarnation? Is this the second coming? Is this something else? What is this instance in which God brings the firstborn into the world? Uh, What helps us to understand this phrase is to note this word world. Uh, It's a a fancy Greek word. You can ask Riley about this later. It does mean world, but it's not not the, the word that we normally see, cosmos. It's not that same word. It's a different word that has the connotation specifically of habitation or an inhabitable space. So it could be the world, could be the earth, but it could be other inhabitable spaces, a contained space. And it's actually the word that's used in Hebrews 2, verse 5. Look there. For it was not to angels that God subjected, here's that word, the world to come. The world to come. And it's there referring to the heavenly realm, particularly the future heavenly realm. And so I think it's better to take chapter 1, verse 6. He brings his firstborn into the world to be like chapter 2, verse 5, referring to the heavenly world, this inhabitable space. 
All that to say, no surprise, I think what's in view here in chapter 1, verse 6, when God, this instance when God is bringing his foremost, his firstborn, into the world, it's referring to the same event that we've been looking at all along in Hebrews. The exaltation and the coronation of the Son of God after making purification for sins. It's when God exalted the firstborn, this foremost in rank, his son, into that heavenly realm, the world to come. It was then that all of God's angels worshipped him. What verses 5 and 6 then show us is that this singular appointed son has every right to reign and he is worshipped by the sons of God, the angels. No one, not even angels, no being can rival the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. No one like him has the right to reign over all the nations. No one has the name that he has inherited because no one has accomplished this great salvation. No one like him has made purification for sins once for all. There is no one like him. No one is worthy of that name besides him, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, you may not be, like me, tempted to hold angels in such high regard that they come in competition with Jesus. If you do, let's talk about it. But you may not face that kind of... Uh, Temptation, because our theology in this day and age isn't as aware of supernatural activity as maybe we should be. But I guarantee you, you will face situation after situation in discussion, in the workplace, in a friend group, with your family, where you are asked, or you are suggested to say, or you are cornered into saying that Jesus is somehow less than God. That Jesus couldn't really have been the fulfillment of all that God had promised. You see, the world and those around you whom you love, who don't know Jesus, they're okay with you having Jesus in your life, as long as he's not the kind of Jesus that you have to give up everything to follow, as long as he's the kind of Jesus where other people can also believe what they believe at the same time, he can be to them, he can be a good teacher, a prophet, someone who loves you, or made a sacrifice for you of some kind, or the kind of Jesus that makes you feel better about yourself, but the minute that Jesus is God, the very singular truth claim that Christianity holds, that no other religion holds, that Jesus is God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the kind of Jesus that no one can come to the Father except through him, the kind of Jesus where he is the one who must be worshipped with all of your life. It's then that they have a problem. And you're going to face those kinds of situations. And it will have nothing to do with angels. Hebrews 1, it's clear. 
And the Bible is clear. This is the Jesus we believe in. Jesus, God of very God, the one through whom God created the world, who had every right to reign. The angels worship him. And all those who find salvation in him worship him for who he is, the exalted son of God who inherited that name for all that he accomplished for us. That's reason number one, he has the right to reign. Reason number two, why we must worship Jesus as the supreme son of God is in verses seven to nine. He reigns in righteousness. He reigns in righteousness. These verses help us to see that not only does Jesus have the right to reign, he indeed does reign now, and he reigns in righteousness. In these verses, the author contrasts the servanthood of angels with the righteous reign of Jesus, the Son of God. You see, not only do angels worship him, we saw in verse 6, in verse 7 here, we see that they serve him by doing his bidding. Now, when I think of angels, and when you think of angels, you probably think of cute angel babies, <laughs> or uh, Cupid and Valentine's kind of stuff. Uh, maybe you think of, if you're more refined, you think of Victorian paintings where there's lovely angels with beautiful wings. Maybe if you grew up in the church like me, you think of porcelain precious moments, little figurines. We all have different views of angels. We live in the city of angels, but our angelology is quite lacking. C.S. Lewis brings the heat on this. He says, in scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, there, there. Love that. C.S. Lewis with the rebuke. When we read of angels in the Bible, we more often get a picture of fearsome, majestic beings. Now, admittedly, sometimes angels are visible. Sometimes they're invisible. And when they are visible, sometimes they aren't as fearsome. They look like human beings. Think of the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18, and, and Abraham brings them in because he thinks there's three men wanting to enjoy some, some food. Or think of the angel at the tomb and Mary and Mary and Salome. Think it's a man. And they ask him questions. So sometimes they look like humans, but sometimes they're awesome. Isaiah 6, seraphim with three sets of wings covering themselves. Or here now, Revelation 10. John says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. That's an angel. The Bible talks a lot about angels. The Old Testament mentions angels over 100 times, and the New Testament even more, 170 plus times. We know that angels were created. Think of Genesis 2, 1. Uh, what was created there are the heavens and the earth and all of the hosts within them. 
Colossians 1.16 help, helps us to think about how Christ was the agent through whom God created the world, but in that we see both visible and invisible was created. We know there are different kinds of hierarchies and different kinds of angels, and we'll save all that for the Grace Equip class that you can take. Sign up. Kent Hughes boils it down so helpfully about angels and their role or their function. He says he, he gives them four functions. And it's not the only way to think about angels, but I think it's a helpful sort of boil down. He says, one, angels continuously worship and praise the God they serve. That's their first function. Function two, angels communicate God's message to man. We've talked about that a little bit already. Three, angels minister to believers. Four, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments and at the second coming. These four functions and perhaps others in between or to add on to those four, whatever it is, angels worship God and they serve him. They do his bidding and accomplish his purposes. And so as we look back at our text, what we see in verse 7 is this truth that angels not only worship Jesus in verse 6, but they serve God in verse 7. Uh, and this quotation in verse 7 is Psalm 104, verse 4. It's a song about the greatness and the wisdom and the glory of God. And this psalmist, as he's praising God for his greatness, he puts the angels in their place. And he says he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. You see, on one hand, Psalm 104.4 is a testament to the greatness of God that myriads and myriads of angels are at his disposal, ready to do his bidding in whatever form, holding a flaming sword or as a wind, angels are ready to do what God wants them to do. But on the other hand, seeing the way that the author of Hebrews sees it, it puts angels in their place. It reminds us of their role as servants, their role as winds and flaming fires at the command of God and King Jesus. And then the author of Hebrews compares them to that King Jesus in verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of right, right, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, while even these majestic, fearsome, awesome angels are simply the servants of God, they're great. The Son instead sits over them on his eternal throne and he rules with a scepter of uprightness, and even they are at his commands. He rules as the Son of God, one who shares in very nature and character with the Father, and so he rules in perfect justice and righteousness. Verses 8 and 9 are Psalm 45, which is actually a, it's a wedding song. Psalm 45 is a love song. It's a song that would have been sung not at a coronation, but at a wedding 
a wedding of a Davidic king. And it's a song that extolled, <coughs> excuse me, extolled the greatness of God in establishing the Davidic throne. It recognizes the forever aspect is not in man, but in God in the Davidic promise. And the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 45 and the concept there of this established forever throne and he runs with it because the author of Hebrews sees that this forever element of this throne is in Jesus. And we have not simply an earthly king in Jesus, not just a human king whose reign is limited to a lifespan, but an eternal king whose coronation came with his death on the cross and is being raised to life and his exaltation to the Father's right hand. And his reign, the author of Hebrews says, is a reign of righteousness. It's a reign of righteousness. It's a reign in which sins, our sins, are nailed to the cross and we are given righteousness. It's a reign in which we are brought to life from spiritual death and we are formed ever in his righteousness, into his likeness, image by image. Jesus reigns righteously. I think some of you have studied Louis XIV, if you're on the right side of campus. Louis XIV reigned longer than any other monarch in history. 72 years and 110 days. I guess they count the days too. I would just round it up, but that's just me. And for those under the rule of Louis, 72 years and 110 days was many years and many days too long. Much history has been written about his infidelity and his rudeness and his manipulative nature. Imagine 72 years of the same dude just yanking your chain. Whether it's 72 years or, for us, four years of a leader over us in some kind of way, impact or no impact. Ours, as humans, is a wearisome and woeful existence to live under supposed leadership of other humans, corrupt and careless as they can be sometimes. And this passage brings us perspective because Jesus, over these human kings and over the angels who do his bidding, Jesus is the ever-ruling and reigning king, the Son of God, and his rule is righteous. His rule is perfect. His rule is holy. His rule is just. And here in this coronation service of Hebrews 1, God anoints him with the oil of gladness. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now the irony here in Hebrews 1 is there's a contrast. You see, there's the angels who serve King Jesus. And then there is, he, there is Jesus who is God and reigns righteously. And the irony is that Jesus became righteous king over all by becoming a servant. Just like the angels who serve him. Philippians 2 says he took on the form of a servant in becoming a man. Jesus 
suffering servant and now exalted as righteous king, ruling and reigning by the standard of his perfect righteousness. He set aside the right to be God, to become man, and yet both being God and man in his divine nature that he shares with the Father had the nature of a man to die a sinner's death and provide the sacrifice that we needed for our sin and so that we would be given his righteousness. You see, his righteous reign is not just one in which will be shattered to pieces like in Psalm 2 for those who have his righteousness by his grace. He's given it to us by his death on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is to say that God made the sinless Son of God, Jesus, to bear our sin. So that Jesus, in dying the death that we deserved, we would get his righteousness and our sins would be placed on him at the cross. It's the great exchange. And so if you tonight are still living in your sin and rebellion to this righteous king, and you know in your conscience that when this life is over, you will face the judgment of that righteous king. And he will, because of the ways that you've sinned against him, in his perfect justice, he will judge you and condemn you to eternal hell. If you know that's you, or you've been with us for a while, or you're new with us, there's good news. The good news is that if you turn to the Son, as Psalm 2 said earlier, if you pay homage to the Son, you submit to the Son by placing your faith in Him, He will, in His grace, not only reign righteously, but give you His own righteousness. So that when the time of judgment comes, God will not see your sin, but he will see the righteousness of this righteous king. And you'll be given to be in his presence rather than forever separated from him in hell. And so that's Jesus who reigns in righteousness. The one who is worthy of all our worship. Who is worthy of all that we are. There's a final reason why we must worship Jesus as the supreme son of God. And it's in verses 10 to 14. It's that he will reign forever. He will reign forever. This last section further emphasizes what we have already seen in sort of bits and pieces throughout the first nine verses of this great epistle. And it's the truth that Jesus, the son of God, has a reign that is an eternal reign. It's an everlasting reign. And so to do so, the author gives us Psalm 102. Psalm 102. The psalm is written in the context of a fallen Jerusalem, the city of Zion in shambles. And the author of that psalm says, God, don't hide your face from me. God, hear my cry. See your people Hear us cry out to you. And the psalmist looks to the eternality of God and sees the trustworthiness of a creator and a sustainer and a faithful God who keeps his promises and he calls them to account and he trusts 
God for his favor and his mercy. That's what Psalm 102 is all about. And in Psalm 102, there's a trust that the psalmist demonstrates that sees past the temporal situation. And I think Psalm 102 is such a great example for us in facing trials. Because that trial that the psalmist faced is far greater than most of the trials you and I would face in this life. The author of Hebrews uses Psalm 102 to show us the eternality of God. That it applies not just to God in uh, the situation where there's a fallen city of God, but it applies also to Jesus, the Son of God, the King in His eternal reign. It establishes His creatorship first in verse 10. Psalm 102 says this, And you laid, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. In verse 2, we saw that the Son was the agent by which God created the world. He was eternally preexistent. And here in verse 10, the picture is that He laid out the foundation of the earth. And that the heavens also are the work of his hands. And so from the very earth that we stand on to the heavens, the angels abode, Jesus, the Son, was the one through whom everything was created. In a real sense, his reign has roots in eternity past. He has the right to reign because he was creator. That's what Colossians 1, 16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And that's the backdrop for verses 11 and 12. You see, not only is he the creator of all things, he reigns as both creator and Hebrews 1 is trying to tell us as creator and as conqueror over sin and death. And that reign as both creator and conqueror will last into eternity. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. These verses picture Jesus and his reign over the nations, contrasting the mortality of God's enemies in a way that they will wear out with the unchangeable, forever rule and reign of the Son of God. How the enemies, they will all pass away, but He remains. These verses give us a word picture we can identify with, right? Because you like clothes. I like clothes. I wear the same clothes over and over. You probably have more clothes than me. But we all like clothes. And when I wear out my clothes, I just buy the same clothes. When your clothes wear out, you're at the age where you can get all kinds of different clothes. One turns into three. Wear out one, get three more. That's what you do. It's good. Well, in the ancient world, you wore your clothes until they wore out, and you had one set of clothing. Not, not like me, where I have five in the same shirt, but literally you have one set of clothing. And when that clothing wore out, you would roll it up and use it as a rag. <laughs> it was useless now for clothes. We wear clothes for style. They, ro- they wore clothes for, for function and for covering and for 
shielding from winds. And the picture here is that Jesus, the creator and conqueror, laid out the fabric of the earth in the beginning. And in the end, as he is still ruling and reigning, he will be the one to roll it all up. As it is a useless garment at that point. And yet all that time, he is the same and he will ever be the same. And just when we've almost forgotten that this whole thing, this whole section is comparing Jesus to angels because we've got Jesus on his throne, the author makes one final comparison of this matchless Jesus to the angels in verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You see, angels, the author is saying, in fact, not only worship and serve Jesus, this ruling and reigning king, angels, angels, he says, they serve us. They serve us as human beings. They serve us who are recipients of God's grace. And so case closed, Jesus is better than angels by who he is and all that he's done and the name that he's inherited. And we'll see in the rest of Hebrews that his message is a better message. His covenant is a better covenant. And his rule is over angels and over all things. And he will someday, as Psalm 110.1 here tells us, he will in victory rest his feet upon his enemies. And so then, not only his redeeming work will be done, but his conquering work will be done. And for all those who do not pay homage to the Son, who do not submit to his righteous reign, they will be as a footstool for him. They will be those on whom he rests his feet. But as for us and as for angels, their role now is to help us understand the Salvation that we've been given in this King Jesus. Psalm 110.1 is a helpful passage because it helps us through the beginning of the book of Hebrews. But it's a passage that has been well known throughout redemptive history. In fact, it's a passage that Jesus himself talks about. And it's captured in three of the Gospels. I just want to read you what Jesus says about Psalm 110 to close our time. Jesus says in Matthew 22, And he's talking with the Pharisees as they're gathered together. He says, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one? And he asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, the Pharisees, said to him, the son of David. And he, Jesus, said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then, Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's the genius of Jesus And it's helpful to understand what Psalm 110.1 is saying and what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying if, if David is writing, 
And what David writes is a conversation between two lords, Yahweh and Adonai, Lord and Lord. And Yahweh says to Adonai, this is someone else, sit at my right hand. Who's talking to who? Because it's not David being talked to. David's writing this thing. And so if David is seeing Yahweh say to Adonai, sit at my right hand, Jesus is saying, who is this Lord? Who is this one who apparently, because he's Adonai, is greater than David? He says to the Pharisees, you understand him as son, David's son. But apparently David wrote this Psalm 110, and it's David's Lord too. So this Messiah, this Christ, is in some way David's Lord as well. And what's the answer to Jesus' rhetorical retort? It's that this Christ, this Messiah, this promised one would indeed be David's son. He would come in the line of David. But he is David's Lord because he is the son of God. And Jesus is that son of God. That promised one who fulfilled and will in eternity bring into fuller fulfillment all that God had promised to the fathers by the prophets. He has the right to reign and he reigns righteously like his father and he will reign forever. Friends, Jesus is not only better than angels. He is the risen and conquering son of God whose angels who do his bidding Minister to us the very salvation that he won for us on the cross. And so he is worthy of our worship. And so whether it's for the first time tonight or it's for the thousandth time in your life, I would challenge you to pay homage to the Son. Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. Submit to the Son. Whether it's for the first time and you give your life to this King Jesus, or it's a reminder to do so again with your life in a renewed sense of worship to this great King. That's our response to such a great salvation and such a great Savior King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, this has been an awesome study in Hebrews 1 so far. There's so many things, and Lord, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend. It is such a great passage, but it's a great passage because in it we find a great Savior, uh, the King over all things, the one who has inherited the name that is more excellent than even that of the angels, the majestic angels who do your bidding, and it's the name of Son, Son of God, Son of Righteousness. We're so grateful we have such a Savior who can give us His righteousness and take our sins upon Himself on the cross. And so we rejoice in that, that His reign of righteousness for those who know You because we've paid homage to the Son, that that reign of righteousness is found uh, not in the end in judgment, but is found in grace and mercy and peace because of the righteousness given to us. So we worship you, O oh God, and we worship your Son, Jesus Christ, for who he is and all he's done. In Jesus' name, amen.